It'd be great if you could grab hold of one of the Bibles near you again. Really good if you could take that and open it back to Matthew chapter 4 on page 968. Um, Matthew 4 and verse 12, our second reading uh, started at. Uh, we're finishing uh, this little series on, uh, that Andrew Reese has put together for us called Christmas is Coming. Um, and as far as Matthew's concerned, as you have a look at this reading, it does feel like uh, he's drawing his Christmas introduction to a close. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 17. At that point, uh, Matthew says, from this time on. It, it feels like a change in direction, doesn't it? You get the sense that everything Ma- Matthew wants us to have in mind about the Christmas story will be by verse 17 in place. And at that point, um, he'll give us his big application. Or the beginning of it, anyway. See verse 17 again? From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. See, four chapters of Christmas stories, all designed to get you ready to hear one word. Repent. All that stuff about Christmas, all the excitement with it, getting you ready to hear one word. Repent. If you've been coming along uh, to Fullwood for the past few weeks, the past three weeks as we've done this series, have you done that? Has repentance uh, the, the point you've got to? Is that the conclusion you've got? Because if not, then we've not really listened to Matthew because that's where he wants to bring us to. And I guess if we've not yet, then we've got one week left of this series to try and get it sorted. Uh, the title Andrew's given us for uh, this morning is Christmas Light. Uh, we'll see why in, in a moment. But there, there is something magical about lights being switched on, don't you think? I don't know if you've been to the pantomime or the theatre yet this Christmas. You know that moment when the stage is all in darkness still? But you have a look because you think you can see just in the shadows people moving around making the final adjustments uh, to the set. And then the lights come up. And all that was prepared becomes visible. I just love it. Don't don't you love it? That wonderful feeling of, in that first moment of light, trying to see everything at once. Trying to take it all in. Your eyes dart around the stage. uh, Trying to see it all. It catches your breath. The the sight uh, and the size and the color of the scene. Or have you you put up your Christmas trees yet? Most of you put your hands up when when Ed asked. Julie and I did that last week. And there comes the moment when it's ready and you switch the lights on. Tasteful ones, just white. We don't go in for any of this garish, multicolored stuff. Uh, And the light from the tree seems, even if it's just for a few weeks at Christmas, to transform what had been an ordinary room where we watch TV into something magical. I've got some friends in Aberdeen. Uh, Their daughter, when she was younger, loved the moment that the Christmas tree lights went on. It was almost overwhelming for her. Uh, She'd kneel down in front of the tree and unprompted would start to sing to it, Oh Christmas tree, I love you. But presented with something that beautiful, it's hard not to fall in love. That's what beauty is meant to do to us. And to make us see how lovely things are. Lights and wonder and singing. See, that's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? 
Uh, there are, I suspect, some serious religious types here, and you're thinking to yourselves, no, that's not what Christmas is all about. But when you look carefully, Matthew thinks it is. See, in his wrapping up of the Christmas story for us, before he goes on with his gospel, he talks about all that kind of stuff. See, look what happens next in his retelling of Christmas. At verse 13, Jesus decides to move house. Uh, leaving Nazareth, he, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. The area was also known as Zebulun and Naphtali. It seems a strange incident, doesn't it? But to Matthew, this house move is the final piece of his Christmas picture. It's odd, isn't it? But it seems for Matthew, it reminds him of a song. A song from a book that the prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before. He gets into it a little bit in verse 15. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then comes the song or the poetry part of it in verse 16. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the valley of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. They're walking in darkness. That, that's kind of poetic way of saying people who are spiritually lost and becoming morally bankrupt. A living in the valley of the shadow of death, that means living with, with death hanging over them. Actually, in Isaiah's day, it was God's judgment hanging over them. But Christmas says, Matthew, is all about the lights being turned on. And in a way that transforms everything, can even transform spiritual decay into something wonderful. And when you see the planned transformation, it should, in an even more profound way, make you, like my friend's daughter, want to sing about the beauty of Christmas. See, I tell you, I tell you what, it's a pain if you can't remember all the words to a song, isn't it? Do you ever get friends like that? They always know the first line of a song, and after that they just fill it up with doobie-doos until they get to the very last line. They seem to know the first line and the last line. It's a pain when you can't remember all the words of a song. So would you, would you turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 9? It's on page 693. Oh, we'll look at uh, this song that we've got written down in the Bible for us. These poetic words, page 693 in your Bibles. Because here's the kind of first heading to have in mind. And Matthew says, Christmas means we're offered a life that's full of family joy. A Christmas means we're offered a life that's full of family joy. As you sing along with the words of Isaiah's song, you get a picture of the kind of life that's being offered. And it's a life with with space and joy and plenty and victory and freedom and peace. It's all there poetically in verses 3 to 5. You look down at verse 3 and we're told about a nation that's increase in size is only matched by its increase in joy. Well, you just think about that for a moment and it is so far from our experience, isn't it? Because our nation seems to be constantly worrying about immigration. For us, increase in size leads to tension, not to joy. And in the tensions, outsiders become statistics. Asylum seekers stop being people and just become a drain on resources. So have you noticed that when you depersonalize people, it's much easier to mistreat them? Now, we'd never actually mistreat them, would we? Well, we don't have to. 
or we can just ignore them. See, but here's a place, verse 3, where if you live there, your experience is like enjoying a daily harvest. Every day, Isaiah is saying, is filled with the joy of plenty. You sing on and, well, here's a place we're living in. It feels like such total freedom. The song describes it, verse 4, like the feeling of a victory celebration. A a huge battle has been won. As someone was reminding me again, we were talking about this, the the adverts that the BBC are running at the moment. Have Have you seen them? It says... Where were you when you heard the news? Have you seen those adverts on the TV or heard them on the radio? Where were you when you heard the news? And then it mentions some of the big historic news items from history. And the Berlin Wall coming down. And Nelson Mandela's release from prison. And for some of you, do you remember those events? Do you remember how you felt? Maybe watching them. Do you remember seeing how other people felt when they were happening? All those people standing on top of the Berlin Wall with kind of pickaxes helping to knock it down quickly. I guess what we're left with in in Isaiah is imagine the feeling of the end of World War II, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela's release. Imagine the joy and the feeling of all of those kind of freedoms rolled into one. And Isaiah is saying that feeling, that kind of joyful freedom is only a taste of the joy that God's people will one day enjoy daily. Imagine the intensity of that. That will be your life. The life that God wants his people to enjoy daily in the place he wants to bring them to. And it becomes even more incredible when you have a look at the government of this place. We'll think about it more fully in a moment, but you just notice verse 6. See, here's a government that's described in terms of family. And the one in charge is described as a son and a father. You get the point of the poetry. Here's a place to live that always feels like the welcome of a joyful home. Here's a nation that always feels like the family home, where those in charge treat you like much-loved family. See, doesn't that sound like the place you want to call home? See, Matthew's been wanting to convince us that that's what God's Christmas plans are all about. See, all this talk about a home might, might have some people thinking, well, Well, actually, we live in pretty comfortable homes already. Look, I don't want to discredit the state of your houses. I'm sure they're much tidier than mine is at times. But would you just listen to one aspect of life in the UK? See, if current statistics are to be believed, in the past decade, gonorrhea and HIV have more than doubled. Cases of syphilis are up by 1,500%. And the number of sexually active people under 25 with chlamydia is thought to be around half a million. One newspaper reported that Marie Stopes Clinics performed 5,992 abortions in January 2007. That was the biggest number for a single month in its 32-year history. And the reason they gave for it? Well, Liz Davies, their UK director, said, we may be seeing the consequences of the festive season. 
where partying to excess and alcohol consumption combine to increase libido and lower inhibition with the inevitable consequences of unprotected sex resulting in unplanned pregnancies. Inevitable consequences? Does this sound like the home of joy and freedom? Does this sound like a home to build a future in? Or are we perhaps living in a place that is also walking around in darkness? And does that mean that we're living in a place that has the shadow of death hanging over it? You hear that and begin to think, well, just maybe we are much further away from the family home that we'd like to live in. See, the television is, is full of programs, isn't it? All about people looking for the best place to live. I don't know if you've seen them. A, a place in the sun. A place down under. Uh, you know the way these programs work. And you tell the expert what you're looking for and they hunt around Portugal or Australia looking for the place that is just right for you. See, have you got that about Christmas? Have you understood part of what God is wanting to do for you through it? Because if you have, you will be feeling joyful. See, Christmas is all about showing you the place that is just right for you. And because at Christmas, God flicked the lights on to show you the life of joy he's offering. Intense joy. Freedom. Plenty. Forever. And he says to you, come home. Come home. So keep that in mind because, well, here's the second thing. And it will just be from, really, verse 6. We'll have a look down at that in Isaiah 9. Uh, The second thing is this, because Jesus has got to be in control for our good. See, the thing about this picture of life, of, of a nation or a country that is more like a family home, well, the thing about it is, that it's what the light shows up. All that space and plenty and joy and freedom, that's not the light itself. It's only what the light shows you. It's what the light, in a sense, promises you, invites you into. You want to know what the light is, and you need to come to this verse, verse 6, because it's here that we begin to see the light itself. Verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The light is, well, it's a person, a son. And it's, it's familiar Christ, Christmas territory for us, uh, the baby born at Christmas. Isaiah says, a son given to us, this son is a gift. And we know Christmas so well, we don't even bat an eyelid when Matthew tells us, the son talked about in Isaiah, the light that moved into Zebulun and Naphtali, well, it's Jesus. We've heard it so many times. We sing about it all the time. It's a no-brainer for us. We all know it's Jesus. But would you notice the big idea that Isaiah and Matthew want us to be clear on? See, what is it about this son? What is it about Jesus that makes him such a good gift for us? Well, the big idea is all over verses 6 and 7. And it's the idea of control. See, what makes this baby such a good gift is that he's come to take control of your life. 
Hey, look at verse 6 again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Then none of us, I guess, can watch the unfolding problems surrounding the credit crunch without wondering, can anyone fix this? It's just another reminder, isn't it, that our world is fragile and even good leaders are limited. I don't know if you saw last week, uh, the US Federal Reserve cut interest rates to below a quarter of 1%. Another attempt to stimulate their economy. If that doesn't work, they have few options. Barack Obama, the president-elect, speaking about the crisis, said, we're running out of the traditional ammunition that's used in a recession. It's quite a metaphor, isn't it? We've no more ammunition to fight this. See, the people in control to lead and protect us, well, they're out of answers and they're out of ammunition. See, but look at how the one God's appointed to take control is described in verse 6. See, he's called this Wonderful Counselor. Uh, The sense is Wonder Counselor. His wisdom is out of this world. Here's a leader that's never out of answers. He's called Mighty God. The the Hebrew is literally Warrior God. Uh, Here's a leader who's never out of ammunition. Here's a leader who will be so wise that he always knows what is just right to do in any situation. Uh, No matter what problems come your way, what difficulties come, he can always tell you the right thing to do. Here's a leader so powerful that he always has the strength to carry out all of his wise plans. See, even if at times it looks like they're hanging by a thread, he has the strength to see them through to the end. And if you wonder, with all of his wisdom and all of his strength, what he intends to do, well, well, the answer is, he'll always use it for the good of other people. See, the clue is in those last two titles he's given, Everlasting Father. So he's the one who's going to provide the family home. A prince of peace. He's the one who'll guarantee good relationships. It's quite a thought, isn't it, about Christmas to think that the God of the Bible is saying that he will use all of his great wisdom and all of his great strength to bring people into his family home, enjoying peaceful relationships with each other and with himself you might ask, well, who would he do that for? We've already read the answer, I think. It's in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. See, it's for the people walking in darkness. It's for people who are, up until this point, living with God's judgment hanging over them. See, it's not offered to the good or the morally upright. It's offered to the spiritually bankrupt. It's offered to you and me. It's what the Bible will go on to call grace. It changes, doesn't it, how you read that little story we had from Matthew. Because it seems to be about moving house. It seems to be about Jesus just moving into a neighborhood, a neighborhood that probably we wouldn't want to move into. It seems a bit dark spiritually. It actually becomes a a picture of the bigger reality. Jesus moving into this world that in the darkness of its sin rejects the gracious God who gives life. But as you look at Jesus' little house move, you begin to see afresh, don't you, that Jesus had a temporary move of home. 
so that he could offer you a chance to relocate permanently. Perhaps not to a place in the sun, but certainly a place in the light. Where God is your father, and Jesus, your older brother, takes charge of everything for your good. So Isaiah will hint at it, and Matthew will explain the details later in his book, how this Prince of Peace pays for our relocation expenses. Hanging on a cross, paying for our sin, cut off from his father so that we don't have to be. See, Christmas. What's really joyful about Christmas is that it's all about showing you the place that is just right for you. And it's living with God, with Jesus in control. I guess with all of that in mind, it it brings us to our final point, and it's it's really more of a question. And and to think about it, would you turn back again to Matthew chapter 4 on page 968 in your Bibles? And Matthew chapter 4, and... And verse 17, back to the the place where where, um, Matthew kind of changes direction, sums up his Christmas story. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I suppose the question, just for us to finally think about, is why does Christmas begin with repentance and not with rejoicing? See, I mean, if Christmas is such good news, why doesn't Matthew, as he concludes his Christmas story, set his rejoicing instead of calling for a repentance? We've been built up with the, the shepherds and the angels, all that's going on, and then he says, repent. I think it's because he knows that when we get to Jesus taking control, a Christmas starts to feel very uncomfortable, doesn't it? Oh, we're pretty happy with a baby who's born to forgive our sin. We're probably okay with a light who's come to show us the wonderful life God's offering. But when we hear that there's a king who is going to take total control, we're not quite as happy with that. See, we are people who want the good life. Or we want the good life in relationships and family and plenty and all those things, but somehow manage to convince ourselves it's possible to have it without God. And God says, it's not possible. There is no good life without my total control. No good relationships without my total care of them. There is no good life without God's good rule. But we're just not convinced. And in little ways, we start to push it out. I don't want that part of his rule in my life. Oh, that's the darkness of sin that Matthew wants us to be aware of. See, our our story started with the darkness of sin in full view. God's rule being pushed out. Did you notice it? It was there in verse 12. See how our story started? Uh, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. It's almost a little throwaway line. Uh, John, put in prison for speaking God's words. I put in prison for telling people to get ready for the total control of God's gracious king. And they didn't like it. And often neither do we. We we don't put people in prison, but all sorts of ways we want to push God's word out. But to miss God's rule is to forfeit God's blessing. The two are always linked. 
You can't have the one without the other. So Matthew asks us again, as he says, Christmas is coming. Are you living in repentance? Turning around to accept Jesus' control. Do you want the joy of Christmas? Will then accept the rule of God's gracious King? Now here's some questions I've been thinking about myself, and they might be good ones uh, for you to ask. Uh, When was the last time you changed the way you were living because of something Jesus says? See, when was the last time you did something you didn't want to do for the sole reason that you know Jesus says it's the right thing to do? See, is Jesus really in control of your life? And not that you won't make mistakes. Not that you won't get things wrong. But as you're thinking, I want to do what Jesus says in every area. Can I ask those of you who are young and maybe Christians and single at the moment, are you letting Jesus control how you decide about relationships? When he says that you must only think about marrying someone who is a Christian, will you trust him with this? Or are you not willing to repent? See, if you're a Christian and married, can I ask, are you letting Jesus control your marriage? Perhaps it even feels like a a bit of a mess at the moment. You're, You're at the stage where your front door looks less like a welcome and more like an escape route. Or will you, as far as it lies within your power, and with the help of a church family who love you, I continue to let Jesus control how you approach marriage. Or are you not willing to repent? I've been married less than two years and I've already had more times than I care to mention where I've had to ask for forgiveness and repent of selfishness and sin. We can ask all sorts of questions, couldn't we? How is your gossiping? How is your quickness to forgive those who hurt you? How is your generosity with home and money and time? If people watched us, would they see that Jesus is in control? Or is there little evidence of repentance? Parents, are you teaching repentance to your children? Are they growing up thinking their future security is linked to to a dedicated approach to education? If you want to be secure in life, you've got to study hard. Or are they growing up knowing that to be secure in life is to live with Jesus in control? And that the reason we study hard is because in every area of life we want to please him. Not that our security is linked with that. Are you teaching children and grandchildren to live repenting? Turning away from their own security and to trust Jesus? I met a student last summer who'd become a Christian. A couple of girls who come along here, I told him about Jesus. And he said he believed it. He'd never been to church. and never read the Bible. A couple of people told him the gospel and he said he believed it and called himself a Christian. I have to say, I was dubious. But I met up with him this term since he came back after the summer. He's been to church every week. And I'm convinced he really is a Christian. And the thing that's convinced me is his attitude to God's word. He's got lots of questions. He's got things he doesn't understand. There will be lots of things he'll struggle with. But as you talk to him, his questions are all about how can I know what God says and how can I do it? And Jesus has taken control of his life. 
He has genuinely repented. And Matthew would say, Christmas has come to him. See, brothers and sisters, that should be our agenda for the year, shouldn't it? To enjoy Christmas. To walk around in Christmas light. And it will come through being repenters. That would be a good agenda to to set for ourselves this year and to keep asking ourselves, are we repenting? Is Jesus in control? And are we enjoying Christmas light? Well, let's pray together.